Welcome to Simply Finance, the podcast series designed to educate Australia on simply everything finance. Welcome back to Simply Finance, brought to you by Positive Lending Solutions. My name is, of course, Matt Tarrant, and today I want to take you back to 2017. Now, of course, a very important year for a lot of change in Australia. Uh, The Parliament passed the Marriage Amendment Act of 2017, which legalised same-sex marriage in Australia. Uh, Toyota, unfortunately, closed its Australian production. And in SA, a huge deal was signed of Tesla to build the world's largest lithium-ion battery. Now, of course, then having a huge impact on the finance industry, talking today, we're going to talk about the Australian government launching a Royal Commission into the banking, superannuation and financial service industry. Now, today I'm joined by Julian Richards to talk all about it. Julian, thanks so much for joining me again, mate. Happy to be here, Matt, as always. Now, the Royal Commission was a huge, I guess, commission into the misconduct, as I said, into the banking, superannuation and financial service industry, and it shined a massive spotlight on the sector. I guess, notably, the big four banks that dominate it, which are, of course, ANZ, Commonwealth, Westpac and NAB. Now, these major banks make up four of the seven biggest companies on the local stock exchange by market value, worth around $360 billion combined at the time. Now, the big four also completely dominate Australia's financial landscape with a combined asset, which are, I guess, mainly loans owed to them, totaling more than $3.6 trillion, more than twice the value of Australia's annual economic output. So we are talking huge, huge figures and a huge, huge industry. A 2016 report by the Australia Institute think tank found these assets generated large profits for the major banks. In fact, at the time, there were some of the highest in the world in bank profit share or GDP. So we're talking huge figures and a huge, huge industry. So at the time, what happened around 2017, the Royal Commission Commissioner, the Honourable Kenneth Madison Hayne, acted as commissioner across this inquiry between 2017 and then finally finalised his report in 2019, which completely changed the finance industry in Australia forever. But today, I guess we want to talk about just how the Royal Commission impacted our finance industry and how it was felt across Australia. So I might ask you, Julian, today to maybe go through the steps and how this all started. What actually kicked off this giant Royal Commission into the finance industry? Absolutely, Matt, be happy to. So it really started uh, quite a long time ago, back in 2014, or some people even say earlier with uh, complaints kind of snowballing. But what what technically kicked it off, as far as most experts are concerned, is actually a Four Corners um, report, the ABC TV show, um, had an episode of uh, basically showing a sales-driven culture within the Commonwealth Bank and financial planning division. Um, and uh, really it came off making the Commonwealth ba- uh, Bank just look terrible. So the C- CBA really came under a lot of fire, um, as did other banks, of course, down the end, but it started with um, Commonwealth Bank. Um, and it was found that a fraud scandal actually left thousands of Commonwealth Bank customers millions of dollars out of pocket. Um, so I guess what really happened as they delved into it a bit deeper, Commonwealth Bank was taken to court by the financial uh, regulator Oztrack, um, failing to properly report $77 million worth of suspicious transactions that uh, cash deposits that flowed through their deposit machines. Um, um, Oztrack uh, alleged that organised crime syndicates were using the Commonwealth Bank deposit machines to launder around $75 million, mainly consisting of drug money, um, within two years. So quite a lot for a sh- relatively short period of time. Commonwealth um, 
It's self-held concerns that further transactions um, related to customers who pose the risk to terrorism or at least financing terrorism. So pretty serious stuff, drug money and, and terrorism. You know, can't get much more serious than that. Um, CBA failed to report 53,500, um, I believe it was, cash deposits of more than 10 grand. For those who, who don't know, um, every time a cash deposit of 10,000 AUD or more is made um, in a bank, they are, they are required to report it. Um, and Commonwealth Bank failed to. Um, don't really know why they failed to, but they did nonetheless. Um, these transactions represented around 95% of all of the threshold transactions, which are the transactions over 10 grand. Um, so, you know, Commonwealth Bank really did have quite a lot to, to answer for. The Commonwealth Bank was ordered to pay a cool $700 million fine um, for all their uh, dodgy dealings, I guess you could say. The money laundered through the Commonwealth banks um, included the proceeds of drug money, firearm importation, um, distribution syndicates predominantly involving methamphetamine. So some pretty, pretty serious stuff. So not, not looking good for the um, Commonwealth Bank at the time. Um, but Matt, can you take us through a bit of a, a timeline after that initial start um, with the Four Corners report there? What, uh, what happened next? Yeah, so that Four Corners report, I guess, was it late 2017. And then in, it was actually November that the Royal Commission was announced. Uh, now, by the time that the end of 2017 came out, we had a commissioner appointed. And I mentioned before, that was the Honourable Kenneth Madison Hayne, ACQC. Now, Kenneth Hayne was the Justice of the High Court, or one of, sorry, the Justice of the High Courts of Australia between 1997 and 2015. So he's been in the game for a long time. Now, by December 2017, this is when CBA admits that they had these 53,000 breaches of the anti-money laundering or counter-terrorism financing laws, as you mentioned before. And I guess that's kind of when it started to all come undone. So by the start of 2018, the public submissions were sought. So basically the commissioner went, look, we need to get some information from the public. So any individual or entity, which included, I guess at the time, whistleblowers that wish to tell the commission about any misconduct in the banking, superannuation or finance industry services could do. And they did. In fact, we had a bunch of different commission uh, submissions. And in fact, it was 84% of those submissions related to misconduct or conduct of financial services entities that fails below the community standards and expectations in Australia. So in that time, we had some themes, I guess, that kind of started to come out, uh, which included some of these financial services entities acting on falsified documents, uh, the provisions of inappropriate financial advice, so giving the wrong advice to these customers, inappropriate lending, which was a big one, uh, a delay in processing insurance claims, and also cultural and government practices. So there was a huge amount of different things that came across in these public submissions. In fact, I'm going to take you into the courtroom right now to hear just some of them and some of the discussions that happened right in this commissioner report. It seems, it sounds so complicated when you say it, but you're a bank. Presumably your purpose is to be a bank, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that <laughs> yeah. well yes but yeah but you need yeah yeah what horrible situation through the westpac bank the advice that we were given a bank that's a big bank that i've been with for 16 years for them to do that to their customers is absolutely and utterly disgusting and i hope no one ever has to go through it again finally before we leave your letter to the commissioner you also say in that letter on the first page of the letter, which is underscore triple zero two, that 
you were initially not in favour of the establishment of a Royal Commission, but you were wrong. Yeah. And you say that the Royal Commission has provoked a critical self-examination and driven change for customers. Mm. I'm interested in understanding why you think it took a Royal Commission mm. to provoke that kind of critical self-examination. It's a good question. That was CEO of NAB, Andrew Thornburn, at the time facing some pretty difficult questions from the Commissioner. But it wasn't just the big four that felt the wrath of the Royal Commission. In fact, AMP were one of the biggest hit. And at the time in April of 2018, they were found they'd been charging customers fees for services that had never been delivered. And then they tried to attempt to cover that up, which was crazy, right? AMP, a huge, huge company. So in 2018, they had to start to compensate customers. And staff had been briefed to explain that the compensation was for an administrative error rather than intentional misconduct. So a couple of weeks later, the AMP chief executive had to resign, right? So they got called out completely and completely found out by the commissioner. And then you mentioned this before where CBA settled the anti-monitoring laundering case for $700 million. Now that happened in June of 2018. So around six or seven months after the commissioner actually started to look into these cases. Then we had in September 2018, we had Clearview. They admitted that it committed a crime against uh, making 300,000 cold calls, selling life insurance over a three-year period. And then Freedom Insurance, this was a big one. They sold accidental death insurance and funeral cover over the phone to a man of Down syndrome. Internal communications at Freedom Insurance insulted the man's father when he complained about it. So there were a lot of really, really bad instances. And at the time, it made the financial and banking industry look truly, truly terrible. So we've now gone into, I guess, the cases and the history of this Royal Commission. Let's maybe talk about the result. Where have we got to and what actually happened at the end of this Royal Commission? Yeah, that's right, Matt. So every uh, Royal Commission has to have a very serious outcome, especially one of this nature. Um, now, compared to other Royal Commissions, this one did have a lot, 76 recommendations. Again, it may not sound like much, but it is. Um, and 24 referrals for further action. Um, and a nearly 1,000-page report um, by the Commissioner, uh, the Honourable Kenneth Hayne, as, as, as you mentioned, um, which was released on 4th of February 2019. So this is fairly recent in Australian minds and it has cleared up a lot of the dodginess and charlatans in the uh, banking and financial sector of Australia. Um, you know, as, uh, <clears throat> as the Commissioner did say, um, the community expects the financial services um, that if they break the law, they're going to be held responsible, they're going to be taken into account. Um, the work of the Commission has shown that not only the law has not been obeyed, but it also hasn't been enforced effectively. So really it's the Royal, the, the Royal Banking Commission has found that not only the banks, but also those who enforce it all need to kind of really pull their socks up, if you will. Um, what, what were some of the recommendations, Matt? Can you take us through any of them? Yeah, well, I haven't read all the thousand pages of the report, but there were some pretty clear, I guess, recommendations. And I guess the key points were really the banking and financial industry can't do these things. I mean, they're not meant to mislead or deceive the industry. They have to act fairly. Uh, they have to provide services that are fit for the purpose they're actually providing and then deliver these services with reasonable care and skill. And then, of course, when acting for another, they have to act in the best interests of that other and of course, more importantly, they also have to obey the law. So I'm going to talk, I guess, about some of the key recommendations that Hayne delivered at the end of his report. And let's maybe break that down a little bit by each industry. 
So I guess the banking industry, first of all, they were found that mortgage brokers must now act in the best interest of the borrower, not the bank providing a loan. And a breach of this duty would result in a civil penalty. And that lenders should be banned from paying trailing commissions to mortgage brokers for two to three years. And they have to expand the banking executive accountability regime laws to track those responsible for any breaches of these lending laws. Across superannuation, it was decided that employees should only have one single superannuation fund and hawking of superannuation products should be completely abolished. Across insurance, ASIC should impose a cap on the amount of commission that can be paid to car dealers for the sale of add-on insurance products. For insurance, ASIC should impose a cap on the amount of commission that can be paid to car dealers for the sale of add-on insurance products. And finally, for compensation, Industry-funded compensation schemes should be established as a last resort for those unable to obtain compensation from their financial institution. So there are a lot of changes recommended, but I want to get a feel on just how the industry felt throughout the Royal Commission and what it was like to work in the industry at the time. So I sat down with Tim Wells from Positive Lending Solutions to get his thoughts. So I guess what was the feeling at the time of working in the finance industry and having this Royal Commission coming through, I guess, working day to day, what, what did it feel like? Yeah, at the time, it was a lot of unknowns um, and it was all up for each lender's interpretation. Um, obviously, it was going on for quite some time and there was a lot of questions around living expenses and some lenders were interpreting um, some of the findings one way, other lenders were interpreting another way. So keeping your finger on the pulse of all the lenders changing and, and what lenders were taking and what they were doing was really, really, really tough. And there's so much unknowns out there, um, really. And even still to, the, to today, no one really, there's no real guidelines or benchmark setting stone for something as, as small as living expenses, as an example. Because I remember, I guess, the process of going through it and even coming into the office and hearing conversations about, you know, oh, this has just been announced or this has just been said. Were you someone that was on top of the ball the whole time or did you kind of just want to wait and see what the findings were before you made the decision? You know, how were you feeling and, I guess, engaging in that news throughout the process? Yeah, we. I've read up a little bit on it, but there was a lot to read up and there was, a, you know, there was a lot around the mortgage broking industry, a lot around the asset, um, and then you, you're getting communication from each lenders as well. It was really hard to stay on top of it all. Um, generally, the way we were impacted the most is what and how each lender um, interpreted it. So a lot of our readings and um, were around, you know, communicating with lenders and and finding out what they're doing um, and and how they and how they are inter- interpreting it and then bringing it internally because you know we're dealing with. 20 different lenders and all of them have, are interpreting it differently. So we're, we're, we've had to come up with processes which sort of meet every single lender's requirement and also meet our own compliance. I guess like now the Royal Commission is over, um, it was aimed to, I guess, stamp out that cultural greed of what was considered the banks at the time. Has it done that? Has it been effective? And how, I guess, has it impacted the industry leading forward? Yeah, it's, it's harder to um, do finance now. And lenders are looking a lot deeper into clients' profiles, uh, which, you know what, it's probably a good thing. Um, there were people out there that were being put into positions where they probably couldn't afford the loan simply because the lender wasn't asking enough questions and, uh, you know, the information wasn't needed to be provided up front. Whereas 
now with things like um, you know bank statements and living expense declarations and um, and you know changes to your circumstances in the foreseeable future, we're asking a lot of questions. Not only whether you can afford the loan now, but whether you'll be able to afford the loan for the three, four, five years you've actually got the loan. Um, and yeah, it's just more in detail um, applications now. A lot, a lot deeper. We're looking. And I guess it was a time where there was a lot of media about this was going on and there was probably, I don't know if hate is the word, but there was probably a little bit of distrust maybe uh, from the public perspective of the big banks and, you know, they were thinking they were corrupt and they were there, they had this greed. Did you feel that at all? Were there any experiences, I guess, that you sort of noticed um, from your customers? No, not really on our side. What it did make is um, consumers were getting a lot smarter or, or clients were getting a lot smarter because obviously, um, and you were getting challenged a lot uh, challenged a lot more because it was out there and in the public and, you know, it's always on the news. So consumers are more, more smarter than what they used to be because they're more exposed to it as well. Um, so not too much backlash. We have... You know, occasionally now we have clients coming coming through, you know, challenging how much information we require and, and saying we never used to be like this in the past um, simply because previous applications, you know, it's you could spend, you know, a one-page document and get approved where now it's three or four pages. You need to provide three-month bank statements, pace it, potentially you need to speak in touch with your employer. Like it, it's just a lot harder to get approved now. Do you think it changed the relationship at all between banks and brokers or banks and the Australian community at all? Um, not really between banks and brokers. Um, brokers have still got a, you know, a, a level of compliance that they have to uphold before it even gets to the bank. So really whatever the banks are, whether a client's going to a bank or whether a client's going through a broker, it's, it's, pr- it's pretty much going to be similar. It's just the benefit of going through a broker is we, we can look at your, I guess, your whole profile up front um, and know each lender's policy and how they're going to interpret what and then place you at the best lender instead of going to each lender and getting run around. So, yeah, I wouldn't say the uh, relationship's been hurt, um, but there is lenders out there that have gone the extreme um, and have tightened up a lot from this and that's impacted their volumes um, because there's, there's been no black and white guidelines to follow um, from this yet. So I guess if we haven't got the black and white uh, procedures to follow, are, are they to come or are we just never going to receive them? And could this potentially happen again down the track? Uh, well, no, I wouldn't have thought that it happened again. It, it's all, um, they're a lot better than what they used to. Probably the main thing that I, I point out would be that around the living expenses and um, is up for interpretation. That's that's the that's main key, which um, probably still hasn't been ironed out of what, you know, what each lender is required to, um, to take per individual. Uh, but there is a benchmark which most lenders follow. Um, you know, interest rates have now been, um, I guess, taken out of the broker's control uh, and more around the lender's control. So previously there was a lot more movement um, in them, but now it's more like, you know, wholesale and recommended retail price if we're talking in the, um, in the retail space of interest rates. So um, whereas before it was, really uncapped um, to a certain degree. And I guess that's finally, you lived through this whole process. You were working in industry at the time. Do you have any funny, interesting stories or anecdotes about your time throughout that process? Uh, not really. Probably the biggest thing, like living expenses. I'll touch on that again. Like 
it's quite funny to some clients have no idea of what they uh, what they're spending. You know, it's a hundred dollars a month on food, and then you go to challenge that. Other clients will go really, really into detail, turning uh, and telling you what they get up to on Saturday nights and how much they spend at uh, different venues on a Saturday night. So um, the questions that we're asking open to some interesting stories sometimes, depending on how much I guess the client is willing to tell you. I have no doubt there's plenty of sport bet and uh, OnlyFans accounts creeping in on transactions at the moment. So I'm sure that probably leads to uh, a lot of questions, but um, we, I guess we have to ask those questions now. So it's always interesting to see what are, what's coming up on these bank statements. Yeah, exactly. Sports bets are a funny one. Um, you, you challenge someone on how much they're spending on sports bet and then they, they turn around and say, well, how about all the winnings? Can we include that as an income as well? Um, <laughs> so, uh, if, I mean, if, if someone can consistently uh, get winnings on sports bet, I want to know. Yeah, I want to know how they can do that, and then I might take it up myself. So, I guess listening to Tim there, he spoke about I guess the changes which impacted positive lending solutions, but also what's changed the industry in a whole. But it does sound like there still isn't necessarily a completely defined system across every industry and across every organization. So there's potentially still a little bit of messiness. But I guess the positive is, at least now, after this Royal Commission, there is some form of structure in place. And hopefully, it means we won't ever have to have a Royal Commission again into the finance industry. But I mean, what a crazy time it was for finance in Australia. You're absolutely right there, Matt. And the people who were worst off was, of course, the clients, which were general, the general Australian public like you and me. But then on the flip side, who's going to benefit from the Royal Commission? You and me, clients like us who are just innocent people trying to pay their loans. Thanks for having me on today, Matt. I really do appreciate it. No, no worries, man. And I think you're, you're absolutely spot on. It definitely has made the industry as a whole better. There's maybe still a little of improvement to go and hopefully over the years to come, that just happens automatically without having to go to the full extent of another Royal Commission. Mate, it's been a pleasure, of course, having you with me again. Really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to chatting to you again next week. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Simply Finance, brought to you by Positive Lending Solutions. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love to hear from you. And you can find both myself, Matt Tarrant, and Julian Richards across all social media platforms. And of course, Positive Lending Solutions via the Positive Group Facebook page and LinkedIn. And be sure to join us next week. We discuss one of the most interesting stories and people in finance history in Australia, Christopher Scase. We look forward to joining you then. All of the ideas and advice discussed in this podcast is of a general nature only. Always consult a financial expert like the ones at Positive Lending Solutions before applying for credit or making a financial decision.